0: I got very close to Andrei Sakharov who interestingly was the first man who ever hugged me when I said goodbye to him he was such a great man one of the great men of the of the 20th century i remember it i still remember the feel of his stubble on my cheek as i said goodbye to him and i think we were both sort of in tears i got very close to him kind of father son relationship weird eh the father of the soviet hydrogen bomb This
1: is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Mark Brain studied in Moscow between 1971 and 1972, travelling the country with fellow UK students and spending silly amounts of time in the bathhouses with salted fish and very poor quality beer. He returned in 1974-75 as a Reuters trainee journalist, where he became very close to Andrei Sakharov, the father of the Soviet hydrogen bomb and noble Soviet-era dissident. East Berlin was his first solo posting for Reuters, where he and his wife Jutta both sang in the East Berlin Cathedral Choir for four years including two as BBC Berlin with the honorary status of Lieutenant Colonel in the British Army. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave written reviews in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media by telling your friends you can really help the podcast grow. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus you get that sought after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to ColdWarconversations.com slash donate. So back to today's episode. This is part one of three episodes with Mark, and I'm sure you will find his stories equally interesting as I did. We welcome Mark. To our Cold War conversation.
0: I can't remember how it was I came across your podcast, but certainly as I began to listen to it and get a sense of what you were doing and the openness with which you were exploring all kinds of, all manner of experiences related to the Cold War, and I I sort of read it for a while, and eventually I thought, oh, blimey, actually, maybe I need to Get in touch with you and release some of this stuff that I've been sitting on all this time.
1: Well, and then when you sent me your, uh, let's call it, resume of uh, experiences, you were a, a must have interviewee.
0: Yes, it was rather sweet. You replied, I, I said, might you be interested in, in the following? And I think you came back with a uh, sort of duh <laughs> <A> version <laughs> of what do you mean? Might I be? Yeah. Interested?
1: <laughs> yeah. Just hang on a minute, please. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, would it be worth just you know in three or four sentences, which usually turn into about three or fourteen or forty? I'll keep it short. Uh, a very quick dash through my engagement with the communist world and the Cold War. Just just a few headlines. Yeah, sure. It's it's a bit bonkers, really. Um, it sort of goes back to my mother being a teacher of German. Uh, she came back from Australian. Uh, being evacuated to Australia in the Second World War and studied German and French at Oxford. So she was passionate about languages. And I grew up with Germans visiting in the house on the North Norfolk coast um, sort of every summer. And I got very interested in German and started going to Germany. My mom sent me to Germany in the Easter holidays every year through, through the mid-60s. And I actually turned out to be re- really rather good at languages, as in crazily good. And I just soaked them up. Um, and I then spent over half a year in Germany between school and university, uh, uh, going on to study German and Russian at university. I did German and French at A level, but I had a terrible French teacher, so I decided to do something else, hmm. another language. But my mum, my mum was really keen on Russian. She studied Russian and never learnt any of it for her entire life, even when she had Alzheimer's. You know, she was still studying Russian six years ago. Wow! When I moved back to my hometown in Sheringham. Um, so I developed this passion for languages really early on and, and discovered I was very good at them. Um, and, uh, visited East Berlin. My first visit to East Berlin was in 1970. So that was my first exposure. Uh, no, 1968, sorry, my 1968, of course, I went to Berlin. Um, that was my first exposure to East Berlin and it was pretty down at heel, but they were building the TV tower at the time. And I remember being sort of quite, Quite discombobulated, weird experience with the smell of brown coal smoke and trabants and things. And then I studied German and Russian at university, um, Spent um, uh, went to Russia for the first time in the summer of 1970 with all of our fellow students of Russian from Leeds University. Had the um, best part of four to six weeks, I think, in Russia. Went out by boat, um, the Estonia, the MS Estonia to Leningrad, and then down to Moscow to Abramstvo outside Moscow, where... We studied, sort of studied Russian. Um, I got quite good at Russian as well. And then had a year in Moscow with uh, at the university, at, at MGU, the uh, Moscow State University. And I was there for 10 months through 71, 72. Just uh, got there just before he threw out all the Russian diplomats. But we managed to survive and stayed on there. Then I graduated in 73, um, having had a term in East Germany as well in Leipzig, at Leipzig University in the summer of 1971. Um, so, and I developed a lot of East German friends at that time. And I remember also going back a little bit, 68, working in Bamberg in West Germany, quite close to the Czech border. I remember Dubček, you know, the whole Czech- Prague Spring. The whole Prague Spring, because I was just over the border in Germany and they were following it so closely. And there was an inspiration, we were inspired, you know, I was only- 18 at the time, but there was this sense of liberation. And I remember being in Paris, hitchhiking around Europe when the troops went in, in, 20, in uh, on August 21st, 1968, and uh, the crowds ch- shouting Dubček, Svoboda, Dubček, Svoboda, Dubček, the Communist Party leader at the time, and uh, Svoboda, the, the president. So I was sort of steeped in Eastern Europe fairly early on, and then went out to Moscow, with Reuters, got uh, uh, a graduate trainee post with Reuters in 73 and spent my uh, first two-year posting uh, with Reuters in Moscow, where I got very close to Andrei Sakharov, who interestingly was the first man who ever hugged me when I said goodbye to him uh, in November 1975. I I actually loved Sakharov. Um, He was such a great man, one of the great men of of the 20th century And he was an important person in my journey towards psychotherapy, interestingly, Ian. That was the... Yeah. I remember it sits... I still remember the feel of his stubble on my cheek as I said goodbye to him. And I think we were both sort of in tears. I got very close to him. Kind of father son relationship. Weird, eh? The father of the Soviet hydrogen bomb. Anyway, that's that's how I got going. So perhaps, you know, ask me another question. Otherwise... Yeah, no. Well, I I I mean, that...
1: I mean well I mean that that will be a full episode, just what we've covered there but um if we just go go back to that that first time you visited East Berlin, I mean you mentioned that the the, uh, the TV tower
0: was was going up what what was East Berlin like at that time I've got photographs that I took at the time slides color slides that I've digitized if I could let you have a one or a couple perhaps to put on that but I think you shared you did share I uh, did. some some yeah. links feel free um, to you know to post any of those on the on on the website
1: well they're amazing photos they are they amazing are all their photos. Time, aren't they?
0: yeah it, it was yeah east berlin was um i mean the tv tower in east berlin curiously i think was a bit of a triumph and it's now we you know the wahren site and it's the it's it's the trademark for berlin and it's a really it's one of the very few things of east germany of the gdr that survived and has kind of nobility and it was it, it was well designed and well built, you know, not like much of the other stuff that the East German authorities were putting up. East Berlin was still very much a kind of desert. There were huge bomb uh, sites along Karl Marx Alley, just just behind the facades of Karl Marx Alley, in, in, in near the center. And of course, the whole of the center of East Berlin was was torn down and rebuilt around the Alexanderplatz um, and the station and the Marienkirche, the, the Saint Mary's Church. They completely erased it in the Palace of the Republic. And um, the interesting thing, I think, about East Germany was how I got the sense at the time that they just didn't know what to do with the past. So they sort of erased it here and tried to preserve it there. And I remember going to Dresden for the first time in the summer of 71 when I was studying in inverted commas in in, in Leipzig and just speaking lots of German and making very good friends and rowing with the... um, Karl Marx University Rowing Club and making friends that um, I'm still friends with literally to this day, you know, very nearly uh, 50 years on. That must and be
1: great saying that I, I, you know, there's people who say they row for Cambridge or Oxford. And <laughs> I rowed with the Karl Marx <laughs> University Rowing Club.
0: I did. And one of my dearest <laughs> friends, uh, Jürgen Gutzfeldt, who's still very much a close friend, he actually uh, rowed at Henley in 1967 with an East German crew that came over in eight. And they won. They won a a race in Henley. You know, time when the East Germans were trying to get international recognition. Wow! So, uh, little
1: little known piece of uh, East German sporting excellence there.
0: Genuine excellence, and these were not drugged up. I mean, Jürgen is not was not one of them. But he became an architect of building um, sports venues later on in life, and became a very successful architect in Leipzig after the Vende after. the fall after 1989, but uh, just remembering in Leipzig, um, we would row on the river Pleisse, um, which goes through the centre of, uh, of Leipzig, which uh, rhymes with another word, German word Scheisse, which uh, <laughs> listeners who speak German will know what that means—a uh, yep. bit of a sort of swear word. And it was full of brown coal effluent from just up the road, and also from bo- from bu- uh, Buna, werke uh, the uh, chemical works upstream. Mm. And the East Germans used the rivers at the time just as as sewers, really. I mean, it was just extraordinary. The water was black, and do you know what, Ian? I to this day, forty nine years on, I can remember the smell of those rivers through Leipzig, and going to Leipzig. I've visited Leipzig a few times since the uh, since reunification. The joy that I get. Going to Leipzig, visiting my friends, seeing this vibrant city full of class and color and music and Bach and cleanliness and inspiration. And thinking back to how, how sad it was in those days. They were good people. I think the thing that I take from Eastern Europe, you know, not just my student time in East Germany, is just how ordinary people were. I mean, just ordinary friendships, ordinary life, ordinary love, ordinary... Families falling out, people going for picnics. And I, I loved living in Eastern Europe. And I used to actually say that the better the better Germans are the East Germans. Although I ended up marrying a West German who I met in Moscow in uh, 1974. There was a quality of life, Ian, in, in, in Eastern Europe where uh, people used to really care for each other. They, they used to call it in German, die Solidarität der Schlangenste- Schlangenstehenden, the solidarity of those who have to stand in, in line queue mm-hmm. up for things and i used to find that in russia too during my two years in moscow 1974 to 75 um i made some very good russian friends i'm sure they were reporting some of them were reporting back to the kgb but i remember warmly skiing in the outskirts of moscow at minus at 30 degrees um you know in days when there were still decent winters and going to the russian bathhouses and eating uh, salted herring and uh, 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 what they used to call it, uh, Vobla, vorb- I think it used to call it, and, be- and terrible Russian beer. The Russian, my goodness me, the Russians have improved their beer brewing skills. It was dreadful stuff, Jiguli uh, yeah. beer in the, in the early seventies. I'm
1: glad you pronounced that. I would have got that completely wrong.
0: <laughs> ZH, well, it became a car, of course. The beer was Jiguli, <laughs> and then the Jiguli became the La Lada. So there was a kind of tenderness and a warmth of people who relied on each other um in in real existing socialism and so i made some fabulous friends and uh, i still you know draw on those my wife and i draw on those uh, to this day and east berlin i mentioned in my list one of my warmest memories from all of my years of living abroad and being a journalist uh, was singing in the east berlin cathedral choir for four years two years as a reuter correspondent in east berlin and two years as bbc correspondent in west berlin and it was a now- bloody good choir I'm sure. I'm. I'm. I'm sure it was. I'm
1: sure it was. Um. I that intrigued me. I mean, how did you get to join a cathedral choir in East Berlin?
0: It's a fun, funny old life. <laughs> My second wife, we might get round to that, uh, left me with this wonderful legacy that when things are a bit weird, you just say it's a funny old life you just had that was the only way you could survive Eastern Europe by saying, Blimey, it's a funny old life and not that my second wife was uh, around at that time, but but looking back, um I went to East Berlin um after my after my two years, best part of two years in Moscow in the what was then a large Reuters bureau when there were three or four people. I mean now Reuters probably has about seventy people in Moscow. Reuters changed so much and became an economic powerhouse, I mean an agency after I left in nineteen seventy eight. But uh, in East Berlin, when I arrived as Reuter correspondent at the beginning of 1977, it was quite a sort of prestigious uh, first solo posting for a young a young thrusting journalist, you know, trying to make his mark. And so I was very flattered to be offered that post. But um, I was not a terribly happy bunny uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a young man, to put it mildly. And that's one of the reasons I later became a psychotherapist. You know, divorced parents and boarding school, the usual sort of English story. And I was sitting in the Reuter flat in the alley Ali uh, in January 1977, feeling pretty sorry for myself, to be honest, out of my depths, just not certain how I was going to sort of hack this one. And Jutta, my then fiancé, was in England. So I was all on my rather miserable alone um, in the Reuter flat. And uh, I heard church bells on a Sunday morning. And they were coming from one of those extraordinary churches that the Germans have from the late 19th century, from the Grundezeit, um from the Victorian era, what we would call the Victorian era, where the churches are built into the tenement buildings. So there was a church straight opposite the Reuter Bureau. And, of course, the church in East Germany was vibrant. The Protestant church had a kind of vibrancy. It was, it was a kind of, of official underground. Um, and I uh, thought, blimey, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I mean, I'm not a religious person, really, although I do love church music. So I beetled across hoping just to sort of meet people and went through the service and got talking to the pastor at the end of the service. And he was really nice. Um, Herbert Hildebrandt was his name. And he was the brother-in-law of Regina Hildebrandt, who went on to become one of United Germany's most popular politicians with the SPD. So I got talking with, um, with, with Herbert. And I said, you know, I, I was already loved singing. I was a choral singer. And he said, uh, well, why did you come and join our choir? <laughs> the, uh, the Berlin, the uh, the cathedral, the cathedral choir. So although the cathedral was in a, still in ruins, we rehearsed every Monday evening at a, at, a, at a venue in East Berlin. And I started going to that choir and was singing bass. And Jutta, my very soon wife, <laughs> she came, by the way, over to Berlin and was switching from Bonn to West Berlin as a, a teacher training, and in order to switch, she had to give a good reason for switching universities in Germany. And she said, "Well, uh, well, I'm, uh, my my fiance is uh, is 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 correspondent in East Berlin." They said, "What do you mean, fiance? Anybody can say that. When are you getting married?" She said, "Oh, um, uh, ooh, uh six weeks." Uh, next month. So she rang me and she said that, Mark, um, I've just said we're getting married. Do you mind? <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's we, what I call a proposal. <laughs> that was a great proposal. We then divorced in 2000 and remarried in 2013, but that's another story. But uh, so we married in the Wieskirche in, in Bavaria, which is one of Germany's most famous churches. um it's another story Ian. sorry there's so many stories and no uh, it,
1: well I d- <laughs> don't worry just keep going I'm I'm riveted <laughs>
0: the the cat the the church in the meadow is a, one of germany's most famous one of europe's most famous sort of rural churches beautiful rococo church and it's catholic and my yutta was a lapsed catholic so she had to rejoin the church and, and we had a few discussions with the with the vicar and uh, we were married then in that church um and they said on a Saturday afternoon, don't worry, there won't be too many tourists. and so we, we got we were married. We turned around from the altar and the church was packed with tourists. I'll never forget the moment, dear idea. Oh, anyway, so we married and um, and uh, Jutta then sang with me in the, in the cathedral choir, in the cathedral choir in East Berlin, and we just carried on singing in that choir every Monday evening for the next four years with the Hildebrandts Jörg Hildebrandt uh, being Regina's husband. And he's still alive. Herbert's just recently died, very sadly. And he was the cantor, the choir master. Right. And he, fascinatingly, had been the qu- choir master. He founded the choir in the Eluserkirche, the Church of Our Savior, which is the very famous church on the Bernauer Straße, right in the heart of Berlin, where the wall went. Oh, the red. one that got blown up. The one that got blown up, Ian. Yep. Wow. And the wall went right past its front door and it was in no man's land from sixty one mm. through to when they blew it up in eighty five or so. Um so the ch- the choir uh used to rehearse there before the wall went up, but then Herbert Hildebrandt was determined to keep the choir going as a as an all Berlin institution. It came became then just obviously East Berlin. But it was it was a kind of Leftover, um, uh, he honored the memory of you of, of United Berlin by keeping that choir going all the way through East Germany. And uh, there were we, Reuter correspondent, then BBC correspondent, singing away, you know, Bach's Christmas Oratorio and the Messiah and, and there's, there's, uh, the, the uh, Matthew Passion and the John Passion. We used to do wonderful concerts. God, it was a good choir in the in the Gethsemane the Gethsemane Church in East Berlin, which of course in 88-89 became the centre of, uh, of of the revolution,
1: yeah, which that's brought right. down the
0: wall. So you know, crazy. And the fascinating thing—we'll get to my Stasi files, but the Stasi never clocked really that I was singing in the choir. And, uh, oh, and you know the Stasi—they make me laugh if they didn't want to make, if they don't make you cry. They are just like journalists in those days before the days of the internet, they would cut and paste from the pre- last year's report, and in my files <laughs> there's a report about the end of my first year in East Berlin where they have a kind of end of term report we'll come back to that it's rather fun, and they said brain who my 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 dicknam and my 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 name in the Stasi files was Martin because they gave a name for everybody obviously yeah, yeah, so your code name was martin my the, code name uh... was Martin, yeah, so Martin. Um, sings in the, and then they said the choir of St. Mary's Church. <laughs> it was pretty obvious it was the choir of, of the cathedral, excuse me. But yeah. uh, that mistake was then copied through all the subsequent reports for the rest of my time. Uh, where, while I had anything to do with East Germany, right? I'm going to pause for a moment and let you ask, ask a question.
1: No, that's fine. that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I really appreciate you, um, sharing those. So, so in East Berlin as a Reuters correspondent, what, what, who were you speaking to in e- in East Germany to get your, um,
0: um, pieces? Um, there wasn't a lot of official information coming out. obviously one had to read Neuss Deutschland carefully and, and the the press, it was a bit like Moscow in that regard. You know, you, there was no official information. It was just the facade and all the party, you know, rubbish that was coming out, but you had to follow all that stuff. Uh, the, the, you know, the comings and goings and foreign policy, because East Germans were quite big in Africa and places. And, you know, we had to sort of follow it pretty closely. And, you know, military strategic terms, obviously, they were very, very important in the East-West standoff. So there was a lot to cover uh, in in terms of geopolitics and Cold War um, and the relations between East and West Germany, because it was the era of Willy Brandt. Uh, well, um, Helmut Schmidt, really, I think, was uh, chancellor at the time. And um, the Ostpolitik, the Annäherung, the getting closer to East, you know, the, of the two Germanies, was a yeah. very important part of what we were doing, what we were reporting. So, there, the I was the only – Reuters was the only Western, big Western news agency, non-German, that had a bureau in East Berlin at the time, which actually went back to 1959 and had been opened up because Reuters had a whole load of money in East Germany, which was in non-convertible East German marks. So they had to do something with it. And in 1959, I thought, well, why don't we open a... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that
1: a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favourite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com dot com slash donate to find out more.
0: Why don't we open a um, uh, a bureau so they mm-hmm. use the stash did anybody tell you the story about Freddie forsyth Ian um I've heard it, but some
1: of my listeners might not have done
0: Where, who was the one of my illustrious predecessors as yes. correspondent in East Berlin and the flat on the Shonaza Ali was the Reuter office and flat from 59 from the beginning. And it was on the main road route in and out of, uh, and the center of town. So whenever there was a military parade, the tanks would come that way. And I watched Castro go past our, uh, f- our window and, um, Ziggy Jain, Zygmunt Jain, the first uh, German astronaut or cosmonaut yeah. who went up with the Russians. He went past on a big sort of motorcade thing, standing in the back of an open car. And Freddie Forsyth, a you know, better novelist than he was a journalist. And in, just after the wall went up in 61, he was the Reuter correspondent in East Berlin. And in the middle of the night, there was this tremendous roaring of tanks outside the Reuter flat window. So Freddie Forsyth, this is the story it has been told to me. I'm sure Freddie Forsyth would tell a, diff, tell a slightly less self culpatory story. <laughs> but he would. he then observed all these tanks barreling towards the center of town and put out a flash on the Reuters newswire saying basically, you know, the Russians are about to invade West Berlin. And it was October the 10th, you know, it was the East German military, you know, day of the founding of the Republic. And yeah. all they were doing was just trundling down to the middle of the town to run up and down and look 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 serious and bast some diesel fumes all over the place and then trundle back out again, which they promptly did about two hours later. <laughs> so Reuters had to <laughs> rewind the story. I think shortly afterwards Freddie Forsyth quit Reuters or was quit. Er, Wurde right. gegangen, as they as the Germans say, he he was he was gone as a kind of transitive verb. And he yeah, went, went to Africa and became a much better novelist than he was ever a journalist. <laughs>
1: Because I, uh, one of my previous episodes, I interviewed Peter Miller.
0: Oh, Peter Miller. Good grief, Peter Miller. Yeah. He wrote he um, many books.
1: Yes. And he was obviously Reuters as well That's in right. Berlin. And he talks about the Stasi trying a honey trap on him. Okay. Did you have, uh, any uh, such experiences?
0: No. No, I didn't. Uh, well, I was just newly married. So they were quite respectful. And the. I- I think that's how he got rid of them as well, by <laughs> marrying strategically. Yeah, <laughs> no, no honey traps. No, you asked who do I who did I talk to? You know, there was a lot of uh, expatriate chattering going on at dinner, uh, cocktail parties, dinner parties with Western diplomats. I was very close to the Ständige Vertretung, the uh, the the West German mission in in East Berlin, and to the British Embassy. Um, you know. Uh, The American embassy, we traded information to the best uh, of our abilities, just like I'd I'd done in Moscow. There was a kind of information bartering going on all the time about what on earth was going on. Um, But my edge in East Berlin and then when I was reporting from West Berlin uh, in German a lot, because I broadcast for the German service of the BBC uh, in German, um, as well as uh, reporting into the English language, uh, World Service and Radio 4 and stuff – Uh, My age, if you like, was because I was sort of just living an ordinary life among ordinary East Germans, and I just picked up all kinds of stuff that was going on um, with the help of Edmutter Grace who was our office manager. And the extraordinary thing, she'd been with Reuters. She's unfortunately died about 10 years ago, but um, she was with Reuters from the beginning as the office manager and secretary and sort of just dog's body and do everything, Um, fix, fix everything. And she was never a Stasi agent. Uh, really interesting. She came from the Bureau the the official source of all workers. You know, you couldn't hire anybody just on the open market in East East Germany or anywhere in Eastern Europe. You had to get it through the official um sort of state enterprise for uh, translators and cooks and bottle mm-hmm. washers and stuff. And Edmuter came to us that way, but when the sh- files were all open, she was a woman of great integrity. Um she you know, she was a product of her system. You know, lived in East Germany, so she wasn't disloyal. But my goodness me, she was a she was a good source. She was a good woman. So I used she used to pick up a lot and say she couldn't report it because she wasn't a reporter and wasn't allowed to report. But she said, "Mark, you might want to check this out or check that out." And I talked <laughs> to my friends, and one of my scoops was when the East Germans bought ten thousand Golf's VW Golf's from West Germany, and it was a kind of acknowledgement that the Golf was a rather better car than the Trabant. <laughs> it was one of those moments that led actually ultimately to the to the collapse of east germany and i got i got an insight on that because somebody said guess what golfs are being delivered to a car showroom down in down near schönefeld airport so i beatled out with my friends and sure enough there they were so i put that on the Reuter wire especially in germany it was a sensation it was one of my great scoops
1: i presume it was only party loyalists who would have got them
0: no no the curious thing about east germany was there was a it was a They used to insist that they were a law-based state. And when I go through my Stasi files, all 2,700 pages of them, it's clear that the Stasi was quite, you know, quite particular about putting down, we're opening a formal legal proceedings against uh, Martin, you know, brain mark, Mm. whatever, uh, for anti-socialist, whatever, you know, according to so-and-so of the law. So they... It was a very bureaucratic state that sort of, it wasn't It wasn't pure Vilkur, What's the English for Vilkur, Sort of whim. There were rules and there were people in East Germany who supported and managed the system who were sort of trying to do the right thing by the rules of the state. So uh, when 10,000 golfs were imported, I'm sure there were an awful lot of, of party loyalists who got first dibs. But there were quite a lot of very ordinary people who just managed to get themselves in the queue, and um, or with 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 connections, you know, b vitamin B, they used to call it, yeah, um, you know, connections. Um, we'd call it vitamin C, I guess, with connections. So it wasn't entirely meritocratic, but there were you know, a lot of people got golfs who had just been in the queue for a long time. <laughs> That's incredible. A ten-year wait for cars, of course.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, did you interview any of the uh, East German politicians at all, or not?
0: Uh, that reminds me of, of um, in China, when I was in China in the uh, mid mid eighties, uh, the Today programme would occasionally ring and say, "Can you ring Deng Xiaoping's office to see whether we can get a <laughs> get an interview?" <laughs> I mean, the answer was, "Duh, no, no, never, not once." not once, not in East Germany, not a single interview did I ever get with anybody in any position of authority. I'd say the most powerful interview I ever did with any well-known East German, uh, the interview of which I'm most proud, which was on the Today program in the uh, 810 slot, you know, the top of the program, Yeah, was March 1990 from the Palace of the Republic, where um, very late at night, when it was clear that the CDU were sweeping the polls with a vote for unification, uh, where I interviewed Stefan Haim, who was kind of dissident novelist, a communist yeah. novelist who came back to East Germany from um, spending the war years in America. And I was sort of close. I thought Heim was going to be my sort of sucker off, but he he, he he wasn't a kind of clearinghouse for dissident information. But I I, I sort of got a bit close to Stefan Haim. Uh, while I was there with Reuters, and he used me because <laughs> his son was the sa- same height as me. You know, was six foot four, and so he he used me to bring suits over from West Berlin for his son, um, and I, which we traded for information. Except he never really gave me any. But I, right. finally, I finally got my payback, Ian. Um, in March uh, uh, nineteen ninety, uh, uh, the election results were pouring in, and the CDU was winning. And I went up to Haim, because he was in the in the restaurant of the Palace of the Republic, where all the where, which was the press center for this. And I said, you know, Stefan, could you give me an interview in English? Because obviously his English was was fluent. And um, I asked him, you know, one of the questions I asked him was, so what do you think historians will say about this GDR that's uh, now going to reunify? And he said, oh, it'll just be a footnote in history. And that was on the Today program at 10 past eight. I was quite proud of that. But otherwise, no. interviews with, you know, no, absolutely not.
1: You did mention in in, in the notes that you sent me about an incident in uh, 1977 mm.
0: where you almost got... Um, Chucked out. Yes. Yes. That was an interesting one. Um, I it, it, One of the reasons that I was quite glad to stop being a journalist, Ian, was that I... Managed to be in the wrong place at the at the wrong time most of, most of the time, and I missed so many stories by being on leave or away or in the wrong place. And I and I missed. I left China in at the end of May nineteen eighty nine, five days before the tanks went on to Tiananmen Square. It was rather clever timing. And my honeymoon in nineteen seventy seven was in Grenada in the Caribbean, and so my new, still relatively new wife and I were in, we're st- we hadn't yet come back from, hot, from from our honeymoon in the Caribbean. So on the 7th of October, as Jutta and I were preparing to come back from the Caribbean, there was a craval, uh, there uh, was a uh, commotion on Alexanderplatz, uh, where the police went in to break up some youths who were getting a bit boisterous on the national holiday. And I got back to East Berlin, that was on the weekend, and I got back to East Berlin, I think, Uh, on the tuesday or the wednesday and the place was buzzing with rumors that uh, some policemen had died in this uh in this sort of riot it wasn't a massive riot but it was sort of poll sort of thing and uh edmuta and her friends and my stand-in derek parr at the time he was standing in for me while i was away they'd heard from friends at the charity at the hospital that there had been deaths and possibly four policemen had died now, I had no corroborating source. It was no point in talking to the officialdom because they would deny it. You know, they wouldn't talk to us. Yeah. So I put the story out um, over my name because we couldn't put it over Ed Wouter's name. And Derek was, was already leaving. Derek passed. So it went over my name and the East German authorities were pretty miffed. And they said it was you know, anti-socialist slander and it was untrue and all the rest of it. And they hauled me into for the foreign ministry and gave me a very sharp dressing down and said Herr brain that is unserious". Mr Brain that is unserious. You know for me <laughs> age 27 that was pretty frightening to be told. I'm I'm not. Unserious. Unserious, <laughs> much worse than that. So we negotiated a kind of climb down where Reuters put out a statement. To this day Ian I don't I I'm not absolutely certain whether anybody died. I suspect they didn't. I suspect it was what the Germans call a Falschmeldung, <laughs> you know, a false false <laughs> fake news. The East Germans invented the term fake news. Um, it probably, we'd know by now.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, it's interesting. It's almost a bit like the one of the sort of uh, incidents that kicked off the Velvet Revolution to some degree was that, that's it. you know, there was talk of a student being killed by the police. Which wasn't true, that's right. Which wasn't true, but sort of grew in its... Um,
0: in its telling, well, these things gain a currency, and they gain a currency because the political system is such that it can't it can't digest this. It the the rumours and the failure, the inability of the state to to level up with its citizens, uh, leaks out sideways. So this time the, the relatively small thing. You know, it can happen. Hey, you can have riots, and people policemen can come to grief. This happens in any in any state but it reflected just how dysfunctional um that state was and how it rested actually on on sand as we discovered you know just little, a little over 10 years later but they uh, didn't throw me out but if i'd been west german absolutely they would have kicked me out they would have made a great hullabaloo and that would have been the end of my time in uh, in east germany but because i was reuters uh, english and british it would have caused too many problems to throw me out so but it didn't call, it didn't do me any harm really you know we trundled on we didn't have any access to official information anyway so they they couldn't withhold anything that they Mm. weren't already withholding
1: well i guess it sounds good on your cv to say that you were unserious or
0: (laughs) well i or you you made the east germans think you were unserious (laughs) it was preparation i don't know if i put it on my list of things that we might talk about Ian, but it was preparation for being declared persona non grata in romania uh, short a little uh, while later we
1: have got that and we, we will come that. we'll come
0: to that we will come to that so many stories <laughs> so here many stories. M-
1: mark uh you know i've I need a larger uh hard disk to uh cater for all of this because you returned to berlin
0: uh with the bbc uh, well i didn't so much return to berlin you I just switched in berlin. i just i just defected right. from east berlin to west berlin um, okay. With a three-week, with a three-month gap in the middle to sort of learn BBC World Service stuff and uh, re- be reprogrammed for, for reporting in German on on radio rather than in English to a uh, to a news agency to a global news agency. So I spent right. three three months at the end of seventy-eight, beginning of seventy-nine, with the German service at Bush House and the World Service. And how
1: different did you find working for the BBC versus Reuters? How different was that?
0: I love radio. I love sound. It's one of the reasons I love your podcast. Um, And I I took to radio like a duck to water. There's something about the communication, the direct sense of one person talking to one person. I mean, in radio, you're not broadcasting to millions, although one I did, you know, from China, there were probably times when I was broadcasting to hundreds of millions at once, Um, especially when I was singing barbershop on Chinese television on a Sunday morning Uh, you might come to that on another. No, place. you didn't
1: note that down. I'm writing I didn't that know one that down. One. <laughs> <laughs> That's one I'm going to write
0: too. Um, But there was an intimacy to radio. You know, yeah, radio has the best pictures, as is well known. Um, and there I was haven't an heard
1: that line. I'm,
0: I'm having that.
1: that I'm having that.
0: No, radio has the best pictures because they're created by the individual listeners. So you are yeah. not broadcasting to a group. You are talking to one person. So I could be talking. You know, you're listening in, and others will hear this recording, but reporting on the radio to BBC World Service, I was only ever reporting to one person, and it gave it a kind of an immediacy and a a need to explain and communicate and use words and structure, sentence structure, that would stay with people, and it's not a printed form. There's such a difference between writing for radio because it was written, you know the dispatches were written they weren 't made up on the spot. Uh, the two ways obviously were, were 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 spontaneous as as this one is, but when you write for radio you know, on a typewriter, you as we had typewriters, God, I was glad when word processing came in <laughs> because I used to change everything um but when you 're writing on a typewriter, even though you 're writing you 're talking into your typewriter, so I loved that, um and I loved the sense of 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 hearing hearing the voice come back you know in german i once a week i did a a letter from berlin a brief aus berlin which went was listened to by, avidly by our relatively small audience of bbc listeners in in east germany especially in east berlin because we broadcast on fm on vhf as we i think called it in those days into east berlin so we had quite a loyal set of listeners and i think the bbc german service was part of the story that led to november 1989 and you know we correspondents for the german service it, young English men mainly, you know, with fluent German. We played our small part in in bringing that about. But the biggest difference I think um, was uh, sort of a curious difference from a Cold War perspective was that uh, in East Berlin I was an accredited correspondent, you know, with a formal accreditation with the foreign ministry, that dreadful building, which thank goodness they've pulled down now. They're putting the new palace up in in old East Berlin. Um, Whereas when I went to west berlin to the bbc i was f- a, an honorary member of the british military government i was uh, a an honorary lieutenant colonel so i had the status the bbc had the status in west berlin of a military correspondent because nothing had changed in berlin in four power berlin the four sectors from may the 8th may the 9th 1945 Mm. Until the, the 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 signing and implementation of the four plus two negotiations in 1990 and reunification, um, nothing changed in Berlin because the Russians and the West, you know, the Soviets, as uh, as we you know correctly need to call them. So you
1: could you could waltz through Checkpoint Charlie just showing your ID card. I
0: walked through Checkpoint Charlie showing my orange card, and of course, when Jutta, my wife, uh, became. Uh, uh, when we went to West Berlin, she had German citizenship, but she didn't at that point have British citizenship. But she couldn't have an orange card as a German citizen; otherwise, she'd be her own occupier. So she had to take British citizenship. So, uh, being German, she, uh, we, she she got her passport and took it on board at the at the British consulate in West Berlin, and she had to swear allegiance, you know, as one does, you know, on the hand on the Bible stuff. And she swore allegiance, and we laugh about it to this day, to the Queen and all her hairs. Because <laughs> heirs is written with an H, you know, yeah. a German, you pronounce every letter. So to the Queen and all her hairs. So she then became dual citizenship, German and British. And then we went into East Berlin showing our orange card just through the window of the car, because we were visiting not the Hauptstadt der DDR, not the capital of the German Democratic Republic, but the Soviet sector of occupation of occupied Berlin. Yeah. And so the BBC status, um, we lived in a British military house, rather nice one actually, in West Berlin for two years. Yeah. Um, so, so we had access, but we couldn't go outside East Berlin, couldn't go outside the Soviet sector, except through Starken, through the checkpoint out of West Berlin into the Soviet zone. And then when we were in the Soviet zone, that was the german democratic republic so i had to have a visa (laughs) i mean you couldn't make this stuff up anymore could you because berlin was just bonkers
1: yeah well i've heard the term berlinology yeah um with diplomats who were experts in berlinology and knew all the nuances of the you know the post-war agreement and exactly how it worked and all the different protocols
0: a bit like the irish Um, backstop yeah (laughs) nothing changes (laughs) yeah yeah
1: no it's it's really interesting so well that that must have nice to be a lieutenant colonel did that come with any other benefits i
0: have to you know was i because you know were there any honey traps set by the east germans or the or the kgb you know my time in eastern europe you know the question i don't know if you're going to ask it but i'll answer it now anyway is was i ever approached by western uh secret services and the answer is no um not really uh, we worked very closely with bricksmiths uh, um, the british military mission to the to the soviet zone and they were legal legal spies they would travel around east germany and break into soviet military bases and climb into tanks and take photographs and stuff and it was a bit of a sort of boys own Competition between the Russians and the Western zones, and the Brits and the Americans and the French, especially the Brits, because they really, it was very public school, they would uh, have a marvelous time taking down the signs that the Russians, the Soviets, put up around the areas where they didn't want the bricksmith people to go. So uh, we were quite close to the bricksmith lot, and I just tell you a story. I think it wasn't yeah, on, on, on my list. One of my favorite stories, and I've got a picture of it out here. Uh, in East Germany, so much of East Germany was off limits as military testing grounds and so on. I mean, huge swathes of East Germany were were military uh, for the Russians or for the East Germans, mainly for the Russians. And so the Russians would put these signs up, as you, as I'm sure you've discussed in previous podcasts, um, around all of their military bases to try and sort of keep these Western spies away. And they were four languages, you know, no, no entry in, in German, in Russian, in French and in English. Uh, this is uh, um, no access to members of military missions you know from and so the, the soviets kept putting these things up but the brits and bricksmith kept pulling them down and saying you're not allowed to have them up and also that's not a legitimate area so bricksmiths would go and nick these signs just you know in on in, in industrial quantities and the soviets kept putting the signs back up and one day a very dear Uh, Australian diplomat friend of mine. She was number two at the Australian mission in East Berlin. And she was a very good source for some of the diplomatic stuff. Uh, Still a very good friend. uh, Now living in Perth. She was very close to all this military lot and probably she might have been Australian intelligence as well. I've never asked her, actually. I need to do that this summer when we go over to Australia. But she had one of these signs uh, which had been given to her by Charlie. I can't remember Charlie, Major Charlie with with Bricksmiths. Bricksmiths. And she had a sign in her house in uh, in East Berlin, because she was a diplomat in East Berlin. And I said to uh, Charlie and Sue, when they came around for dinner, because we used to do lots of entertaining in our Type 4 house in uh, Johannesburg, Ali in West Berlin, uh, in in 79 to 81, uh, I said to him, God, I'd like one of those signs. And Charles sort of looked wisely and stroked his beard and said, stroked his chin and said, I can't, I can't really, I'm not allowed to nick these things for, you know, because you're not, you're not one of us. You know, you're a journalist. I can't really do that. You're not a diplomat. You're not military, but I tell you what, I can write you a thank you letter. Oh, I said, that's really kind of you thinking, hello, he's going to play around with this one. Anyway, we got the thank you letter and the thank you letter was (laughs) written on the back of one of these signs. Um, Brilliant, and the sign i mean I've, I've got it literally outside my study here i'm where i'm talking to you now fr- talking to you from now and it's dear mark thank you so much for a lovely evening delightful nice to meet your little son such a splendid little chap who'd been been born he was only three months old at the time our, our first born right um, you know and it's a bit of an unusual uh, letterhead and paper but i uh, hope you like it so <laughs> i've had that ever since i, w- I was going to um take it to Antiques Roadshow to see what it was worth. But uh, they were on Chroma Pier the other day, but I was traveling at the time, so it wasn't able to take it long. It is the most extraordinary Cold War memento.
1: I've actually seen one of these. I'd, one of the talks I do at various societies is about Bricksmiths. Oh, okay. And it's made up of a number of recordings I did of an interview with a bricksmith officer, and he he tells the most incredible stories. But I regularly get former bricksmith personnel turning up yeah. to these talks. And they bring along one of these signs. But I bet not many have got a thank you letter for a dinner party on the back. Not of at all. Not I haven't checked the back of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Threatening code, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another incredible story. So, so your wife was. I think you said she had to commute to the west to uh, get to the free university.
0: That's right, because she came to join me. She was uh, two years into a three-year teacher training in Bonn, having not been allowed to do A-levels, you know, Abitur and go to university by her very traditional father from Dresden, who was an army officer or became an army officer working in the military in the uh, music corps of uh, the Bundeswehr. Um, He was very traditional in his attitude to to, to women and and boys. So Jutta wasn't able to study for Abitur for A-levels and go to university, but she started as a secretary in uh, the um, Min- Ministry for International Aid in, in in Bonn in the late 60s, but wanted to become a teacher. So she got herself posted as a 21-year-old to Moscow as a secretary. And that was where I met her when I was with Reuters, uh, arriving in Moscow in 74. So she then saved enough, saved enough money from her from her uh, German income, um, uh, embassy income, to go back to Germany and study, self-study, you know, self-funded study mm. at, the teacher tra- at the teacher's training college in Bonn, um, in, starting in 1975, 74, 75. And um, she was two years into a three-year teacher training when I went back out to Bonn and met her again and we sort of teamed up. And I then got posted to East Berlin and if we were going to be together, she clearly needed to switch. So that's how we ended up getting married rather quicker, you know, in strange circumstances. But she moved to then East Berlin, but she was then studying at the Free University in what well, we wasn't then the Free University it was the Pedagogische Hochschule, the, the teacher training college in West Berlin. So she would commute every day from East Berlin to West Berlin as a German citizen, not of course through Checkpoint Charlie but through either Bonnheimer Straße or Heinrich Heiner Straße, which were the crossing points for Germans. Because mm. Germans couldn't cross at Checkpoint Charlie. Checkpoint Charlie was there for the for the for, for non German foreigners. Mm. Uh, so she beetled backwards and forwards with her four stroke car, um, and would come back every evening and so you know, back to Schonhauser Ali. Uh, It was rather unusual. Um, She must uh, have been virtually on uh, first name terms with the border guards, I would have thought. It was weird. We sort of got to know them, but they would sort of smile wanly, um, because I used to go backwards and forwards across Checkpoint Charlie, a huge amount, especially to the Reuter Bureau in West Berlin, because we used to work very, very closely together, obviously the German service. Reuter Bureau, the Reuters German service um, and, and Reuter Bureau in West Berlin and, and me doing English for the whole of Berlin, really, um, uh, on the east. Um, but um, so I, we both go, go across the border almost every day. But we had these things called a Grenzempfehlung, a Border Recommendation which allowed us to jump queues and go in. And I had a very um, fetching, old-style English British passport, which is sort of rather the vogue again now. And I remember hmm. that, well, using it almost every day to go backwards and forwards across Checkpoint Charlie. While Jutta, what, when we were going backwards and forwards to East Berlin, when we were in West Berlin, then going – hang on. No, then we'd go over East, through Checkpoint Charlie because she had an orange card. But when we were going out to dinner in West Berlin from East Berlin – I would go through Checkpoint Charlie and she would have to go through Heinrich Heinerstrasse just down the road and we meet up on the other side to carry (laughs) on to the dinner. And then coming back, we'd have to do the same, you know, split and go through different checkpoints for two years.
1: Crazy, crazy times. And when you go to Berlin now, you can't, it's difficult to imagine it.
0: And I just, just a little, a little aside, uh, Ian, I have, I so love Germany and I take my hat off to how the Germans have... Healed those wounds when when Kohl, Helmut Kohl, said in five years there would be blue Landschaften in East Germany. You know there will be blooming landscapes. I remember thinking he's right. There are it's going to be like that. Of course, it took slightly longer than, than than had been hoped in 1989, 1990. But the Germans, as a nation and as a state, how they have risen to the challenge of integrating East Germany, building East Germany up honoring East Germany in messy ways yeah and there are pockets of East Germany that are still suffering a lot as we see with the AFD coming up again in Saxony but going to Leipzig going to Dresden in particular where my wife's father's first wife was died in the raid of February 1945 and his first daughter uh Angelica who's which is my wife's uh which is our my our daughter's middle name, uh, died of diphtheria in January 1945. So there's a real German history here that I've sort of married into and that I feel in my bones that we, you know, trashed Dresden in 45. And the, the, the kind of grief of visiting Dresden when I was living in Germany and feeling the gaping emptiness of the Dresden city center and how it had been brutalized by the Prague street, Pragerstrasse, these Germans had put up these dreadful new buildings and how the rest of it was waiting sort of to be healed. It's like a sort of gaping wound. And as a psychotherapist, this is the stuff I work with emotionally all the time, you know, wounds of the past. Hmm. And uh, going to Dresden now, uh, it it just warms the heart and how the Frauenkirche has been rebuilt with that British provided cross on the top. I mean, what a testament to to the healing power of connection. And you know, really, hats off to the Germans. Yeah, yeah, now I, get it's, very, I get it's, very sort of philosophical about that.
1: But no, it, I think it's interesting the East German experience of the you know the end of um, the Cold War because West Germany was there. I know you know a lot of people lost their jobs, and it wasn't very you know that it wasn't a great experience for a significant number of East Germans. But compared to somewhere like um Bulgaria or Romania with rampant inflation and loss of pensions and and all of that sort of thing there was there was
0: a lot more of a cushioned transition for the east Germans absolutely i mean they they used what one might call in monetary terms today the big bazooka they just printed money and they pumped the West Germans just opened up the hose pipes. Into East Germany, it was astonishing how quickly the place began to change. Yeah, Um, and look at look at the look at the um, just look at East Germany now. You you really can't tell the difference, except in the quality of. There's something about the quality of relationships still. There's a kind of community spirit in East Germany in Dresden. I remember cycling through uh, on a tandem because I do these crazy long-distance cycle trips. Uh, we did the length of New Zealand, which is not so much to do with the Cold War, but uh, a, a few years ago and uh, cycled from Berlin to Prague and then across to Bamberg on the tandem. Um, going through Dresden, there's a sense of sort of getting together at particular times of year and all swimming in the river at the same time. And the, the Elbe Schwimmen, you know, the Elbe Swim, they called it, and they swim downstream. And, and there's a sense of... Um, getting together and being a community in East Germany. It's quite strong in West Germany as well. So stronger than it is in some ways in the UK, but there's something about the East German experience that has not gone. There's a kind of quality to identity. Weird. Yeah. I, Difficult to put. I wonder
1: up. whether it's, you know, it, it's almost around, a, you know, a feeling of community facing the same adversity uh, of you know shortages yeah. and having to rely on other people to fix things for you and that process of cooperation that you had to have with your neighbors and with your your friends to just basically get through life
0: totally and uh, but the thing that fascinates me with the psychology of all of this is just how deeply burned that was into the kind of collective and individual and family psyche in East Germany over the forty years that East Germany existed. Yeah and here we are 30 years later and there's still an echo in the east germany in east east berlin as opposed to west berlin in leipzig as opposed to düsseldorf yeah you know, it, it's there's it, something special there's something different about east germany about uh, the the new the new federal lender lands the federal states as they call them yeah, yeah. yeah i wonder how long that will last though. the new generation less so yeah yeah it must be ebbing away but it is the psychology that fascinates me and that's one of the reasons that i am happy to have moved off moved on from journalism into psychotherapy but there is a a kind of collective unconscious what carl jung would call there was something very big going on in the center of europe which was to do with the wounds of the second world war which couldn't heal and the fall of the wall and the end of communist regimes across eastern europe was like it, it was a very deep psychological process, as well as a political and social and economic process. And the fascinating thing, for me, very personally, is it coincided with a uh, you know a breakthrough and a breakdown in my own personal life when my marriage marriage began to fall apart. Um, but there was a kind of healing journey that began, and uh, the Re- Romanian Revolution was right at the heart. It's got a tipping point in my life, was actually at the end of 1989, in covering the Romanian Revolution.
1: And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue to the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.